The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. We continue now in our worship together in God's Word. As you were coming in, if you grabbed a bulletin or if you accessed the bulletin online, or maybe sitting there in your pew, you saw the little half sheet of paper that indicates the title of our sermon today. And the title of the sermon today is Providence. That's what I wanted to talk about and search God's Word together. We, Before we go on to another book, going verse by verse, I thought it would be good to just look at different topics that are either relevant or pressing in your life, our lives as a church, or our lives across the country and the world, see what God's, or the Bible has to say about it. It's important to bring balance there's the macro to teaching the Bible and the micro, they have to go together. That helps us have a balance in our Christian understanding of the Bible, our Christian worldview. You could go through the book of Philippians and spend three years week after week, little by little. That's a very intensive, narrow, myopic focus on one little book of the Bible. If you do it for a prolonged period of time, you're learning much about Philippians, but you're not at the same time getting the proper balance of the big picture of what the Bible has to offer, the full counsel of God. So it's good to take these breaks away from books of the Bible to get that full counsel perspective, the macro perspective. And we've been able to do that on various subjects that you have found helpful. You've even given me suggestions of things you're interested in or you think that we need to look to see what the Bible has to say. Last week we talked about the sanctity of life, which is a major issue in our country and the world and to God. So we got an overview of the Bible last week on that and a couple of other practical things we've looked at in the last month as well. I wanted to do the same today on this topic of providence. thought it would be fun to go around and survey you as you came into the lobby there. Just asking you, uh, so give me your one-sentence definition of providence. I didn't do that, but be fun to think about to see because i guarantee i'd get all kinds of answers that were different no doubt if i asked several of you that you might think oh oh wow i don't know what providence is that's okay that's actually common i remember 30 years ago when i was in seminary my second year my theology professor he was one of my favorite teachers i'll never forget it he said that the doctrine of providence is probably the most neglected area of theology in all of Christianity. And he just said how most Christians don't even know what the doctrine of providence is. We don't teach it. We don't talk about it. Nevertheless, it's all over the Bible. One Bible dictionary said that the doctrine of providence is actually the most comprehensive doctrine of Christianity. It's in every book of the Bible. It's wielded by every author of the Bible, either directly or implied and assumed. At the same time, it's one of the most complex doctrines in the Bible. There's many components and elements to it, but it can be simplified. So that's what I want to do. I just want to simplify this idea of the doctrine of providence and make it really practical and see if I can prove that it's helpful for you and that allow you to see now that when you look at, maybe you'll look at the Bible in a totally different way. Hopefully you're going to actually look at your own life in a totally different way as a result of our study today is just an introduction to providence. 
Lord willing, this week and next week we'll wrap it up. Didn't want to rush through it because it's so important. After all, many have said it's one of the most important biblical doctrines, yet the most highly neglected doctrine. I mean, when think about it. When was the last time you ever heard a sermon on the doctrine of providence? I can't remember myself ever hearing a sermon on this issue. But it's incredibly important. So uh, we're going to go through this doctrine of providence. Now, I have a subtitle. It's a very long subtitle. I could have made it longer like the Puritans typically did, but I shortened it for the sake of saving ink and space on the page. Uh, providence. And the subtitle is how God is working in your life, whether you realize it or not. That really defines providence. Most of the folks today sitting here in our church are members of our church. Then there are the next largest group of regular attenders. We know you. Then there are visitors, and then there are other folks we don't know. And no doubt on a crowd this size, there's probably people sitting here who aren't Christians. They're not born again, don't necessarily even know a whole lot about the Bible, believe in the Bible. So this is a perfect day to talk about providence because providence applies to everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, whether you believe in God or not, whether you believe in the Bible or not. Providence applies to you. It's amazing, and we're going to see that. And the Bible tells us that it's this doctrine of providence that gives purpose, meaning, definition to your life, and that God is working in your life. Imagine that. Even if you don't believe in God, God is working in your life. Even if you're an atheist, God is working in your life. Even if you're an agnostic or a God-hater, anti-theist, God is working in your life. Just can't help it. That's what the Bible says, and it's true, actually. And we're going to see that. So we're going to look at several scriptures together, kind of like a Bible study. Uh, before I go any further on this doctrine of providence and what it is, I actually need a volunteer. We're going to do something a little different today. I need a volunteer. Okay, thank you, Austin. Come on up. Beautiful. Now, why did I choose Austin? Because I know Austin. He is a good sport. He would have volunteered inevitably anyway, but I just don't have time to wait for you guys to raise your hand. Uh, are you ready, Austin? I'm this ready. Is, this is totally ad hoc, spontaneous. We have not rehearsed this, right? We have not. You have no idea what I'm going to ask you. Correct? Yes. Okay. So Austin knows about me that I love basketball, and I grew up playing basketball. And actually, when I was a little kid, I wanted to play in the NBA. Some of you might be laughing. That's okay. Um, so that desire was very strong all throughout uh, elementary and then even in junior high. And then, So then it was time to choose a high school go play basketball at to so that i could go to college so i could play in the nba um so i chose the largest school basically in the state of colorado and the most competitive school and so i went there as a ninth grader uh to play basketball and i tried out with the team there's about 80 guys for the freshman team they had like six basketball teams and there was the freshman team and i was a freshman there was 80 guys who showed up for freshman tryouts for 12 positions one of them was the brother of a denver nugget who was six foot eight at the time. And I was like, whoa. Anyway, so I made it through the first couple of cuts and then it got down to the last 12 and I went to school the next day and the list was posted on the wall and I'm looking through the list and my name was not on the list. And it was earth shattering, traumatic. And um, Austin, I want to ask you a question mm-hmm. and I want you to be totally partial, totally honest. Don't, it, what, no matter what you say, it'll, don't worry about hurting anybody's feelings, including my own. Uh, I just want to ask you, who are your two favorite people sitting in this building today? And you can't say Jesus. I can't say that Jesus. I would say my wife and my... So it's uh, Emily, his wife, 
and your daughter and does she have a name? Laura. Laura. So Emily and Laura. Austin's two favorite people. Now, we didn't rehearse this, and I was hoping that when I asked Austin, who are your two favorite people in the world, I was hoping you were going to say Emily and Laura. Awesome. But I just want you to know, Austin, that uh, I got cut from my freshman basketball team 38 years ago. And many would think that's a bad thing and a sad thing, but just so you know that if I did not get cut from my freshman basketball team, you would not know Emily and you wouldn't have baby Laura coming. Did you know that? It's absolutely true. Yep. And so I want to explain why that is the case. Thank you, Austin. Really appreciate it. So just, well, here's how it happened. So that was the most devastating thing that happened in my life up to that point. I I was not a Christian. I was a total pagan. Didn't know anything about the Bible. Um, Got cut. Then uh, I was so upset. My dad was so upset that we decided, you know what? Uh, I'm going to transfer from this high school and go to another high school. So I did for the sole reason to play basketball. So I transferred from that high school, uh, Regis High School, to another local school, but it was a little smaller. And I had friends that went there and I knew I could play on that team. So I transferred the next year to that different high school. It was a Catholic high school and I made the team and played. And while I was at that high school, I graduated from that high school. I would not have graduated from that high school had I made the freshman team at the other school. So I transferred. So when I transferred to this Catholic school, there was a teacher there. He was there for one year. He was a former Catholic priest, and he became a born-again Bible-believing Christian, and he was my religion teacher my senior year at this new high school I went to. And he began to preach the gospel to me big time, and he befriended me and cared about me. And also while I was at that new high school, I met another older gentleman who's 10 years older than me, and he used to go to the same high school um, he used to be a Catholic and then he got saved at about age 19, 20 in college and he loved basketball and I met him on the basketball court at the same time. And so while I was at this new high school, God brought these two older men into my life who were witnessing to me, sharing the gospel with me. And so when I was a senior and it was time to think about college, I wanted to play basketball in college. And this teacher at that high school uh, heard about a college way out in California, a little rinky dink Christian college called Westmont College in Santa Barbara, California. I never had heard of it. I never would have heard it had I not transferred to that new high school, had I not been cut from the basketball team and stayed at the other high school. And so this teacher, his name was Roland. He had a friend who went to this rinky-dink Christian college in California, far away from Colorado, and his name was Chris Webb. And he was a student at Westmont College, and he was on the student body, and he was an exemplary leader in Christian, and they were friends. And then Roland told me, hey, let me tell you about this little Christian college. You could even play basketball there. And so lo and behold, when I was about to graduate from high school, Uh, My brother or my friend, uh, who was also I met while I was at this second high school, actually drove me out to Westmont College, met the coach. uh, And the coach said, yeah, you can try on and you'll have a good shot. So then I decided to go to Westmont College, rinky-dink college of a thousand people, Santa Barbara, California, all the way from Colorado. I was not a Christian. I went to the college. They allowed a small percentage of non-believers to come. I went to that college. God put me in a dorm room with two Christian students and they're Christian moms who pray. And so I went to that college, and then within two months I got saved at that college at Westmont College, and I became a Christian. It's amazing. Uh, and then uh, I had one of these roommates was from Southern California, and he was at a thriving youth group. And freshman year we became really good friends after I got saved, and then he took me home to his church and introduced me to people 
And then we decided to be roommates my sophomore year at Westmont College that I never would have heard about had I not been cut from the basketball team and transferred to the other high school. And so my sophomore year at Westmont, I'm roommates with my new Christian friend. His name is Bobby. And then Bobby had a younger friend a year younger than him. And her name was Debbie. And she had blonde hair. And her name was Debbie Sullivan. And she was a part of the youth group he grew up in. And she used to come and visit Bobby because they were lifelong friends. And they kept, she kept visiting. She was a Christian and kept visiting our dorm room. And uh, she thought I was kind of cute. And she so that's why she kept coming to visit our room. And, uh, and yeah, it was mutual. I thought, yeah, she's kind of cute too. And lo and behold... Uh, I told Bobby, well, I think I kind of uh, like her. And so we actually uh, started to kind of date as when I was a sophomore at Westmont College. And her name was Debbie Sullivan. And then we became serious. And then we dated for a while. And then we wanted to get married. And then we did. And her name became Debbie McManus. And lo and behold, here she is 30 years later. And then we got married. And then we... Uh, oh, and then I transferred to the Master's College, and then at Master's College, I was exposed to John MacArthur and his ministry, and then I was allowed to go to the Master's Seminary, and then God strengthened a desire to go into ministry, and so I graduated from the seminary there, and then eventually I did go into ministry, and God brought us to a church in Utah, a little rinky-dink church, and while I was there, young family, two little daughters, wife, I'm an associate pastor in Utah, this is 20-plus years ago. Uh, that little church kind of imploded, and I was part-time on staff there, and they had a senior pastor there, and when the church kind of split and blew up, the deacons told me, uh, Cliff, we can't pay you anymore, so you need to look for a new job, and so I did, and so then I found a place in Texas uh, where a friend was pastoring there, and they just lost their associate, and he thought of me because we went to seminary together, and there was this very small window of time where I was looking for a place after the church in Utah didn't work out of a month or two where the pastor in Texas was looking to replace his associate and he was being very aggressive and he thought of me and he asked me, hey, are you available? And I said, lo and behold, what a dink! Our church just blew up and I'm looking for a new ministry. And he said, hey, man, you need to come and apply here. You need to be. So he knew me and he said, you need to come to Texas. Now, had the church in Utah not blown up with the church split, I wouldn't have never considered going to Texas. Uh, but I did go to Texas, and so then I was at Texas for a while. We served there for three years, and then that church kind of blew up, and I was the associate pastor there, and they had people leave, and then the senior pastor came and told me, you know, and I was full-time, and he said, well, yeah, we can't pay you anymore, Cliff. You need to look for a new job, and I was like, wow, this is, oh, okay, that sounds familiar, and then a church in Los Altos, California, at that exact time, for a short period of time, was looking for an associate over children and family ministries, and there was a guy there that knew me, so he called me and I said, hey, are you available? I said, Lo and behold, what a coinkydink. Yeah, I just got let go of the church I'm at here, and I need another job. So I came to Los Altos, and this was like 18 years ago. And I never would have come to Los Altos had I not had the church in Texas not blown up. And I never would have ended up in Texas had the church in Utah not blown up. And uh, I never would have gone to Utah had I not gone to Master's Seminary, had I not gone to Master's College, had I not gone to Westmont College, had I not been cut from the basketball team when I was a ninth grader in high school. Um, so God is orchestrating all this, and uh, so we end up in Los Altos, California, and then uh, was there, and then we decided, you know what, we need to, oh, and then we met at, uh, one of the ladies there, her name was Anne, we became friends, and then uh, God orchestrated things to the point where we thought there was a group of people that wanted to plant a church, so people considered planting a church, and so they asked me if I'd consider being the pastor of this church, and that was 14 years ago, and so I agreed to do that. 
and this church became Grace Bible Fellowship, and I became the lead pastor. We had about 19 adults, so that was 14 years ago. And so, but what, at the church in Los Altos, we met this lady named Anne, who became a friend of ours and a good friend of my wife. And then Anne had some friends that didn't go to our church. She just knew from the Christian community, and one of them was named Elsie. And uh, it was about seven or eight years ago, this lady named Elsie asked me and my wife to go to a prayer meeting. We didn't know her. It was just the common thing was our daughters went to the same college. So we went to this prayer meeting. We met this Elsie lady who was committed to prayer. And then we did that for two years. And then we thought, okay. And then we weren't in contact with Elsie anymore. And then we got an email from this Elsie lady who got to know us and said, hey, there's an intern from Arizona coming to our neighborhood. And it wasn't to us. It was an email to like 30 people. So there's an intern, he's a graduate of USC in Point Loma, a music guy, he's going to be working with kids for the summer, uh, just three months, he needs a place to live, uh, is there anybody that can house him for the summer? This is five, six years ago, and Debbie and I, we read the email, we independently, we thought, oh, okay, yeah, we can house somebody for three months, no big deal, and so uh, she sends the guy to our house, because we're the first ones that responded, and he knocks on the door, and I open the door, and he says, hi, I'm Austin, and... <laughs> I was like, wow, come on in, Austin. And we gave him a tour. He looked at the room. He met our kids. He saw the dog. He said, this is perfect. And then we escorted him to the front porch. We'll talk about details later. He was going somewhere. And as he was about to leave, he said, yeah, what's the name of your church? I said, Grace Bible Fellowship. And he said, yeah, what's the address? I want to go. I want to go to your church. Now, I've, I've, met, I've known him for 10 minutes. I want to go to your church. And I said, oh, I thought you were like a Nazarene. He said, no, I just went to Point Loma Nazarene. I'm not a Nazarene. Uh, I want to go to your church. I was like, really? So I gave him the address, and lo and behold, he came to our church. And so he came to our church, GBF, for three months uh, as an intern, and it was time to leave. The camp was over, and it was time either to head back to Arizona or pursue another job. And so there was a, a job he was pursuing elsewhere out of the area or going back to Arizona. But he, we got to know him so well while he was here for three months, we thought, man, we can't let Austin go. Uh, it's, he's like, he lives at our house. He beats up my two sons, which is good. Um, and he was a blessing to our church. He befriended many. He sang a solo. He's very gifted. He actually had a heart for ministry, just hadn't explored that yet. So just as the three years was about to expire and he was about to sign on and take another job, uh, we prayed and said, hey, maybe we can offer an internship opportunity to Austin. And so we did. And it was pretty quick and it was for um, just part-time and we were thinking areas of youth and music eventually. And he actually accepted a part-time job, continued to stay at our house. And it was like a three-month gig, see how it goes. And then it turned into six months. Then it was an, a one-year deal, and that went great. And we were in a position financially to continue with that. And so eventually we hired him full-time with music and youth. And he's been here over five years, Austin Thompson. And, yes, <laughs> then uh, four years into it, uh, somebody joins our church. They have a sister. She comes to visit She's 19. She's in the audience. She thinks, wow, that guy leading music is kind of cute. Is he single? Turns out he was. Uh, that was Emily. And then within a year, God brought them together. And then they got married last year. And now they're going to have a daughter named Laura on the way. And none of that would have happened had I not got cut from the basketball team when I was a freshman in high school. That, that is a true story. I left out a lot of details, and there are other many tragedies uh, that happened and disappointments along the way that where God redirected Debbie and I to go this way to end up here. 
Now, in the midst of all those tragedies and sorrows and heartbreaks, every step of the way, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is this is okay, this is good. God knows what he's doing. He's redirecting me this way so that Austin and Emily could get married. Um, I wasn't thinking that when I was in ninth grade 38 years ago. What I was thinking, I was mad at my freshman coach who was stupid and couldn't see my talent. That's what I was thinking at the time. It's only, you know, 40 years later, in hindsight, being understanding the truth of the Word of God and the Bible and how God operates that I realized, wow, all these horrible, miserable things that happened where, had they not happened, this wonderful blessing wouldn't have become a reality. So the fingerprints of God are invisibly all over this thing every step of the way. What I just illustrated for you is the doctrine of providence. And that's what we want to talk about today and look at the scriptures together. This is my story. It's a beautiful story. It is a supernaturally orchestrated story. But every one of you have a similar story. All you need are the proper lenses from the word of God to have the right perspective, the right biblical worldview to look at your life where you are today and look back at your history and see the gracious fingerprints of almighty God who is in control every step of the way. That's the doctrine of providence. How God is working in your life, whether you realize it or not. I would say most of the times we don't know how God is working in our life behind the scenes in any given situation. We don't. We're not infinite, uh, and we're not all-knowing. That's, that's God's wisdom and his secret knowledge to know. So let me define providence, and the next week we're going to pick up more specifically on some biblical examples that hopefully are going to solidify that in your mind to, to truly understand the doctrine of providence, why it is so important, and why it is relevant, and also, in the end, why it's so comforting. The doctrine of providence is one of the most comforting doctrines in the Bible because uh, at the heart of the definition of providence is God's care for you. God cares for you. So with that, let's start with just the definition, an overview definition. That's number one. What is the definition of biblical providence? Two parts I just put there. Just trying to simplify it. This is God's ongoing three things. God's ongoing preservation, provision, and direction. For all creation, you could put God's ongoing preservation, provision and direction in your life. For all creation, every created thing, believers, unbelievers, animate objects, inanimate objects, all of creation. God's ongoing preservation, provision and direction for all creation through secondary causes. That's the key to the definition of providence, secondary causes. I'll explain more what I mean by that. And it's for his ultimate purpose. That's also key. This thing is going somewhere. Your life is going somewhere. World history is going somewhere. And it's very specific in the mind of God. And he's orchestrating all things to that perfect end. So it's God continuing to work in our lives, in history, and all of the earth through his, through his care by upholding, preserving, providing for, and directing all things for his ultimate purpose. That's a, a definition. And then number two, just to expand that a little bit, or another angle regarding the definition, God works 
primarily two ways in our lives and in history. This is a simplified definition. God works two ways, through providence and through miracles. Through providence and through miracles. That's how God operates. Now, if you read the Bible, every once in a while you come across these miracles. You say, wow, that's, I've never seen that before. Like you go to the book of Exodus and you see the ten plagues. Wow. God turning the Nile to blood instantaneously. Turning a, a, a stick into a snake. Did that really happen? It did. That was a miracle. Then you go to the New Testament. Jesus doing these miracles. He could walk on water. He could calm a storm. He could raise Lazarus from the dead after being dead for four days. He could turn water into wine. He's raising people from the dead. He's healing blind people. He's creating limbs on people, those who don't have them. Miracles. The apostles have the ability to do miracles as well. So God does operate through God made the sun stand still one time in history in the days of Joshua. It says, chapter 10, did God really cause the sun to stand still? I mean, how is that even possible? Well, he's the creator, and it's a miracle, and that's the way the Bible portrays it. It actually happened. So God does operate through miracles. Now, in the definition of providence, I said that's when God operates through secondary causes. That means uh, not directly but secondarily through different ways he carries out his purpose. In other words, he's, there are many things that God does not through miracles, not the miraculous. God's working. We don't see it. It's invisible. He works through the mundane, the normal circumstances of life. He works through the laws of nature that he established. He works through the choices that people make, that you and I make. He works through even the dumb choices and decisions that we make. God works through those to move all of history ahead according to his purpose. So there's, he works through normal, ordinary, blasé ways, and he also works miraculously at times. Now, the big thing you need to take away here is miracles are very, very, very rare in world history, according to the Bible. Ongoing miracles are not the norm. So if you're a Christian always looking for a miracle around every corner and under every rock, you're not thinking biblically. It's not consistent with Scripture. You go through 6,000 years of recorded biblical history from Genesis to Revelation, and Seasons of miracles are very rare, done by very few people. Moses did miracles only for a limited period of time for a very specific purpose. And then Elijah and Elisha did some miracles for a very limited time for a very specific purpose. And then long period of time goes by and then Jesus comes along. And he does miracles and he doesn't do it for the first 30 years of his life, but only for the last three years of his life. And then he gives that ability to his apostles to do miracles. And the apostles did miracles for a very limited period of time for a very specific purpose. Then all the apostles die. And then all of a sudden on the record of history from 1000 or 100 A.D. up until today, we don't really have any seasons of supernatural Bible like miracles recorded in human history. Some people say they are, some people make some up, they have sensational stories, that kind of thing, but, but not on the same level in nature as biblical miracles. So that's very important to understand that God operates through miracles, but only very rarely. That is the exception, actually. God has chosen to carry history along and forward through his purposes with all of his creation through normal means, indirectly, through second causes, apart from his direct intervention through miracles. And this is called the work of providence. God is involved. He cares. He's personally involved. 
but on a providential nature. So God works through providence and miracles. Uh, I heard a theologian say this last night in my office when I was talking about it. I thought he gave a great definition. He said, yeah, God operates through providence and miracles. And the best illustrations are the book of Esther and the book of Exodus. The book of Esther, God is not mentioned. Prayer is not mentioned. Miracles aren't mentioned. God is not mentioned. And yet, clearly, you see God's hand operating. Or miracles are not mentioned. Yahweh is not mentioned. Yet God is definitely working through the lives of Esther and the, and the Jews to preserve them. God is doing his work in the normal circumstances of life. It's amazing. The way everything is being orchestrated. And everything looks like a, an amazing coincidence. But it's not. It's the hand of God. That's the book of Esther. Just the classic work on God's providential work and involvement in human life. Then there's the book of Exodus where you've got more miracles than just about any other book in the Bible. Great illustration. So that's how God operates both ways. So I just wanted to encourage you that in this day and age, under the church age, since the time of Christ, the giving of the New Testament, the fullness of Christ and his incarnation, the fullness of the spirit that lives in you as a Christian, God has chosen primarily to operate in our lives during this age, not through miracles, but through providence. You might think, oh, well, that's not as exciting. Actually, it is. It's very exciting if you're paying attention. It's very exciting if you understand Scripture and use uh, those lenses of Scripture to see how God is working through your personal life and through history and what he's doing and where the goal is, and he receives all the glory for it. So let me close with number three because this kind of wraps up the definition, setting us up for next week to talk more about the details of what providence is. Number three, providence is how God operates in the world through, again, just stating the same thing two different ways. Three different ways. He operates primarily through the laws of nature. He's chosen to. What are the laws of nature? The laws of nature are the laws that he created. So in the beginning, Genesis 1, God created everything. At the end of the sixth day, he stopped creating. He's not creating anymore. But his work of ongoing sustaining is continuing. That's why I put that verse at the top where Jesus said, my father is working still. He's not creating anything anymore, the father, but he is still working. And Jesus said, I'm working as the second person of the Trinity. That work of sustaining the creation that God put into motion, he's sustaining it. He's preserving it. He's directing it toward an ultimate goal. He's providing for it. He's caring for it. This, this personal God who is involved, he's not a God of the deists who created everything and then walked away. So. God created the laws of nature in the very beginning. A law of nature, one example is gravity. That's just an example. God's not going to violate that law. That's He put that in as a norm. There are other laws of nature that God created in the beginning. When God told Adam and Eve to procreate and produce children, God created laws for that, of how men and women and the seed is exchanged with the woman and a pregnancy happens. That's a natural result of the laws that got put in nature. Is it the work of God? Yes. Is it a direct miracle? No. Is it the work of God? Absolutely. Are there times where a woman can become pregnant supernaturally, miraculously? One time that I can think of, it's called the virgin birth. Just about every pregnancy that's ever happened came through the natural law and means by which God put into place during the creation week. Does God answer prayer? Absolutely. We'll get more and more into that. So God operates normally through the laws of nature that he put in place, the laws of nature that he created 
operating in accordance to his perfect will. And how else does he operate? He operates through the three, the free agency of created beings, the free agency. In other words, we were not created as robots. God created us as human beings in his image. And therefore, we are people. We are persons. We have the ability to make decisions. To, to choose to make decisions that we're responsible for, to make decisions that impact other people, to make decisions that actually impact the course of world history, if you can believe it. And God is operating behind the scenes, even using our free choices that we make. He doesn't coerce us to decide on anything. But at the same time, he is in charge of the master plan. And amazingly, supernaturally, somehow behind the scenes, Secondarily, he's using the choices that we make to orchestrate his perfect will. When you start thinking about it, it hurts your brain. How does God do this? I mean, I make choices. They're free choices. It's really my choice. God didn't make me do it. He didn't force me to do it. And he didn't coerce me to do it. I'm responsible for it. But at the same time, God knew about that choice. Not only did he know about that choice before the foundation of the world, he ordained all of those choices to happen in accordance with his perfect will. That's where it makes your brain hurt. And we're going to look at a couple of verses that talk about that. So God is operating primarily through the world today, through the laws, second, uh, secondarily, not immediately, through the laws of nature and also through the free agency of all created beings to accomplish his perfect will. And then I put down uh, some key verses there. Here, here's just one. Genesis eight twenty two. the very beginning, right after the flood, God dried up the land and he promised Noah, you know what, Noah, uh, I'm never going to interfere with the weather or the world again through a supernatural flood from now on the weather is going to operate on a natural basis and it's going to be consistent there's going to be a pattern there it's going to be cyclical and he gave this pro uh, promise that goes with the rainbow genesis 8 22 okay Noah, while the earth remains as long as the earth remains and it has for several thousand years while the earth remains seed time and harvest those are seasons cold and heat it gets hot in the summer, cold in the winter. This is cyclical. That's the weather pattern. S cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. Cools down at night. Gets hot during the day. So this regular, consistent cycl cyclical pattern with the environment and with the weather will not change. It says right there, it will not cease. And it hasn't. So this is God's promise to us. So as long as the earth remains... Uh, the world is not going to be overcome with a flood again because God said so. The polar ice caps are not going to melt because of global warming and then flood the entire earth. We don't have to worry about that. God said so. There's going to be consistency, constancy, predictability from God regarding our environment and the weather until this earth is gone and he replaces it with the new heavens and the new earth because that's God's promise to us. That what that highlights is laws of nature that God has put in place that govern our weather, the patterns of the seasons. That's what I'm talking about, these laws of nature that God himself has created, that he sustains, that he oversees. Ultimately, for our care, for our good, for our preservation, for our blessing, in addition to for his glory and his ultimate purposes that will be revealed in the very end. And he's even showed us from Scripture what those purposes are. This is the God that we serve. With that, let me go ahead and read as we get ready for now. We have the opportunity as Christians uh, to thank God, to worship God, to celebrate our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. I say celebrate because we get to have communion. And one of the words 
of communion of the Lord's table in the book of Corinthians is to give thanks. Eucharisto, Eucharist, that's where we get it. And that, what that means is to give thanks. And so for the Christian, the Lord's table or communion is designed by God to be a time of thanksgiving, a time of celebration. So that's what we as Christians get to do. So we're going to do that in just a moment. And to prepare our hearts, I'm going to invite the men to come down and, and pass out the elements. What they're going to be giving, some of you are new here. So just so you know, uh, communion, the Lord's table, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it. This is a gift that Jesus Christ gave to the church, to believers and to believers only. If you're not a Christian, uh, when that plate comes by, just grab it with two hands and just pass by. That's okay. That's what God would have you do. Uh, he only wants believers who are convinced in their own mind of the gospel to participate in this time. Okay. Then when you just, just grab one cup, because in that cup, it's got the drink and the bread on the bottom together in one cup. That's kind of new and different for some churches. So just one cup, hold that. And after we read our scripture and have a time of meditation, we're going to celebrate communion as Christians together in our, our own hearts. Uh, well, what are we supposed to be celebrating? And what are we meditating on our own hearts? The Apostle Paul told, told us the words of Jesus himself. Let me read 1 Corinthians 11 while you're sitting there and grabbing your elements. This will help prepare our hearts before we partake. This is how Paul described communion in the church, things we're supposed to prioritize. He said, I received from the Lord. Jesus gave him directions about communion and its meaning and how to celebrate it. I received from the Lord Jesus that which I also delivered to you. I'm going to explain to you the purpose of communion and how we should do it together. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, just before his death, he took bread at the meal with his 11 apostles. And he gave thanks. See, there's that word Eucharisto. He gave thanks to the Father. Jesus always gave thanks to the Father before he ate anything. So Jesus took the bread he gave thanks to the father he broke the bread and he said this is my body he was using it as as a symbol he broke the bread i'm going to be broken i'm going to be i'm going to die for you i'm going to die for your sins so it's a symbol this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me so after i leave after i die i rise again and i send and i leave i want you as the church to continue doing this very thing that i've established for you take the bread break it remember me remember that i died for you that i died for your sins celebrate that great truth then after breaking the bread in the same way he took the cup which we also have here and after supper he said this cup is the new covenant in my blood in other words this cup symbolizes that great promise in the old testament that god said hundreds of years ago that he's gonna bless sinners with the new covenant which is the gift of the messiah who would die for sinners and rise again from the dead that's what this cup celebrates and remembers and symbolizes. This cup is the new covenant, my blood. I'm going to shed my blood for you. I'm going to die for you as your substitute. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the two commands that Jesus gives us here at communion is we're supposed to remember. Remember who Jesus is. Remember what he did. Remember that he died for you as a sinner. And remember that that death allows God the Father to forgive you of all of your sins because he, the Father poured all of his wrath on Jesus as your substitute. So if you're a Christian, all of your sins are forgiven by virtue of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, if you're not a Christian today, you don't have forgiveness of sin from God's point of view. There's only one way to get forgiven of sin. And that's through believing the death of Jesus Christ that it happened on your behalf and that he rose again from the dead. If you don't know Jesus Christ, you have sin, 
You have unforgiven sin, and you're literally under God's curse, says Scripture. That's bad news. That's frightening news, actually. But the good news is you need to get to know Jesus. You need to bow the knee to him as Savior. He is the only answer. He's the only way for forgiveness. He's the only way to heaven. Without him, you have no hope in this world. The blessed Savior. And you get saved based on his goodness, not your own. Because we aren't good, are we? So that's the beauty of communion. That's what we celebrate. The goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ, our blessed Savior, who died on our behalf and absorbed the wrath of the Father so that we might have total forgiveness of sin and be adopted into his family forever. That is reason to celebrate and rejoice, isn't it? And that's what we have the privilege of doing at communion. Right now, with that, uh, I'm going to let you just meditate in your own heart. And Paul says, as you're meditating and praying before you take the cup... uh, Examine yourself, think about the sin in your life, and just ask the Lord to forgive you of your sin. Anything that maybe happened this morning, the last week, something you haven't let go yet, you've got to get clean and right with the Lord. And then after just a minute, then we'll celebrate together. So let's go ahead and meditate in our own heart. Jesus said to eat and drink in his name. Let's eat and drink together. Well, in light of our introduction to this doctrine of providence, I'll leave you with one verse from Romans 8. 28, this is how God accomplishes his providential work in our life and in history. This is a promise to the Christian, those who know Jesus Christ. If you're not a Christian, this promise doesn't apply to you, sadly. But you can change that by embracing Christ as your Savior. But for all of us as Christians, be encouraged with it. Think of something bad that happened this week. Think of something terrible that happened, a disappointment you had this last week. It doesn't matter what it is. It was an event. It was a person. But it was sad. It was heartbreaking. It was frustrating. It was disappointing. It got you down. Think of that very specific thing and then put it through the filter of this amazing verse. That God is going to take that. He's going to work it for good somehow. We don't know how he does that. Don't try to interpret it. Don't try to figure it out. Let God do that. But here's the promise. We know as Christians, it's a fact, that God causes all things. God is in charge. He causes. He does it. All things. Not some things, a few things, the good things only. No. God causes all things to work together for good. Not all good. It doesn't say all things are good. He works all things for the good. He works bad things for the good. God causes all things to work together for good. For who? For good to those who love God. To those who love God. So we can rejoice in that great truth in light of the frustrations and challenges that come with just everyday living, just resting in the Lord, walking by faith. God, I I claim this promise. I stick to it. I've seen you do it time and time again. I've seen you do it in the history of my life. I've seen you do it in the history of the Bible. You're going to continue to do that. I want to walk by faith. God, I believe. Help my unbelief. That's how we need to pray. Let's give the Father the glory for today. If you'd bow with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this day. Again, the wonderful privilege to worship with the local church body, fellow believers, the family of Jesus Christ, to sing to you, to have fellowship, to hear from the truth of your word. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that lives in those who know you, who continues to be our teacher, helps us understand Scripture, and helps us apply scripture 
into our life. God, I pray your blessing on every troubled heart here today in light of this wonderful reality of your providential work in every person's life down to the smallest detail. Help us to trust you. Help us to wait on you. Help us to persevere and give us contentment and joy in the spirit all the while. All for your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.